The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The parties are divided in terms of the effect that the stimulus is going to have. This inflation debate has really been heating up the effect of what the Biden administration is spending on political capital. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. A group of centrists are the key senators to watch. Joe Biden, his number one focus in addition to the COVID health crisis is jobs. I don't think we have red roads and blue roads, and that's the way we're looking at this. Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. Time to talk about China. This says the United States leads the way with European allies, as well as the United Kingdom and Canada, in issuing targeted sanctions against Chinese officials for their wrongdoing against Uyghur Muslim minorities. Plus, we got the latest from Capitol Hill. We check in with Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. My name is Kevin Cerulli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied none other by my colleague, Bloomberg Politics contributor, uh, Jeannie Sean Zeno, as well as Sarah Chamberlain. Sarah is the president and CEO of Republican Main Street Partnership, which is a group that promotes centrist Republicans. It's great to have both of you with us. We begin tonight with the big story, a geopolitical story. The U.S., U.K., and Canada joined the European Union to impose sanctions against China over alleged human rights abuses on the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, drawing an immediate reaction from Beijing. The EU kicked things off with sanctions that target four Chinese nationals and one entity, The U.S., Canada, and the U.K., chairing the group of seven meetings this year, largely mirrored these actions that are largely symbolic and unlikely to impact China's economy or behavior. However, the U.S. Treasury said that it had sanctioned two Chinese officials in connection with serious human rights abuses against ethnic minorities in Xinjiang. Chinese authorities will continue to face consequences as long as atrocities occur in Xinjiang, said Andrea Gaki, who is the director of the Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, in a statement. We begin tonight with sound on from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki regarding last week's meeting between Secretary of State Tony Blinken and National Security Advisor Director uh, Jake Sullivan in Alaska. Take a listen to the sound on this regarding the meeting. I know there's been a lot of focus on some of the public theatrics or, um, you know, more dramatic public piece. But I can assure you from talking to our national security team that it was a substantive meeting. Coming up, we're going to check in with Hagar Shamali, CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies and a former uh, Treasury Sanctions Department official uh, in both Republican and Democratic administrations. But uh, Jeannie, it's just remarkable to see the conversation that we were having on Friday with Keith Kroc, formerly of the State Department, and now just seeing the the geopolitical uh, rally that has occurred, so to speak, in the first step, I'm told, against a, a broader strategy uh, for the actions uh, of, the, of the Communist Party in Xinjiang. 
I was thinking back to our conversation last week as well, and it, it is, um, you know, I think a good first step that the administration with its allies, which has been very important, of course, to the Biden administration to work with allies, not to go it alone, are taking. But even just in what you were just relating, of course, these are not going to have much of an impact. So I, I think of this as a first step, but we need to see how they are going to address this going forward and whether they can continue to have the support of their allies as they do that. And oh, as we talked about last week, continue to work with China on things we need to work with them on, like health and climate and other issues. So it's a very, very difficult line for the U.S. and its allies to walk here vis-a-vis China. So the EU, this is what what caught my attention, Jeannie, is the EU uh, started first. And there's been a lot of talk in Washington on both sides of the aisle as to whether or not the EU would join the United States in in some of the tactics and, and the playbook in order to handle the Communist Party of China. But clearly this shows that they are willing to work uh, with the United States, with the UK and with Canada and broader set of allies uh, on this particular issue. They are. And we were talking about that, you know, can, uh, you know, ha- is has Beijing, it seems like it is really, you know, as you described last week, gotten the wind at its at its back here, feels emboldened. I, I said people said that. I people, didn't say that. that. Let me correct. That. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> they, they, they present as they're emboldened. Yeah. And hence, you know, what the sort of back and forth in Alaska last week, um, in part because they feel that the U.S. is a bit weakened and it's a bit isolated from some of its allies after four years of the Trump administration. But to your point, the EU uh, you know, taking this first step and leading the way on this does fly in the face of that. So this question of whether Beijing should feel as emboldened as it seems to, I think, has got to be asked at this point. I, I think that's a great point. Uh, and the Chinese Communist Party responded uh, and they said sa- they said they will sanction 10 individuals and four entities on the EU side, saying that the measures, quote, harm China's sovereignty and interest, end quote. Uh, and they deny these these horrific allegations. Uh, Sarah, just talk to me about the politics of China before we head back to domestic economic issues. Uh, especially, this seems to be an issue that Republicans and Democrats agree on. It sure does. I mean, 100%. I will say that President Trump started talking about China four years ago, and I agree we should have done more with our allies around this and I like to see I like the fact that President Biden is working with their allies on this. But China's a huge problem. They're becoming a world problem and both parties, Republicans and Democrats, have to understand that and work with their allies. So yeah, this is an area we hundred percent agree on. There aren't many, but this is definitely <laughs> one of them. You know, it's a nice day in spring. There's agreement in the air. It's, it's It feels here in Washington, D.C. I don't know what the weather is around the country. I don't get out much out of D.C. these days because of the whole social distancing. But the city did, uh, Jeannie, enter into a new phase of reopening today. So there seems to be some new energy in the nation's capital. Speaking of energy, let's pivot now to domestic economic uh, domestic economics. Everyone's talking about taxes in the financial services world of Washington. Earlier today, um, uh, White House Council of Economic Advisors member Heather Boucher discussed the wealth tax, and she did it on Bloomberg Television with my colleague Lisa Abramowitz. Take a listen to the sound on taxes uh, from White House Council of Economic Advisors member Heather Boucher. Here she is. 
I think what's important here is that we really recognize that folks at the top have done uh, been able to you know maintain their incomes for the most part, their jobs, um, assets have been okay. So um, so they have been less hurt. And really, it's those folks in the bottom third, um, that bottom part of the K, that have been hardest hit by the pandemic and are struggling the most in this recovery. So, Sarah, you represent a group of of centrist Republicans. The administration is talking about increasing taxes on top income earners who earn more than $400,000 annually and have been less hurt, uh, the administration argues, by the economic impact of the pandemic, while the poor and the middle class have continued to struggle. Is this something that garners popularity amongst Republicans? Because... Well, first, what do you what does the data show you in terms of where Republicans are on on increasing taxes on the wealthy? They do not want their taxes increased. They think it's. It, I mean, they knew with Biden being elected that it would probably become um, you know the reality, but but they're really opposed to it. You know, the the, the upper percentage of American people are spending money, which is trickling down, and you know it's working. And if without COVID. The, the tax cuts would have not have been an issue because, you know, the economy would have been booming. With COVID coming, you know, it has slowed the economy down, obviously. Um, but it would be a real shame if we, the taxes go up again. But they will. I mean, they're going to. I don't think there's much, you know, we can do to prevent that. Um, you know, it just, it is what it is. But I think one of the reasons he got 72 million votes, President Trump, is because people did not want their taxes going back up. The people who are making over $400,000 a year feel that they're paying a great deal in taxes and they're paying their fair share. Uh, Sarah, I, your, your, your response, you know, no, they don't want their taxes raised. <laughs> I, I think that's right across the board true for all of us. Um, but let me just ask you, because one of the things that struck me, um, and it was such a good interview that Lisa did with Heather, yeah, and I, I was listening, and one thing I did not hear Heather talk about, or I did not hear them talk about as much as I would have liked, um, is something that actually, Kevin, you talk a lot about. So, um, Sarah, I wanted to throw it to you is this issue of retraining and job skills mm, right yeah. you know they're talking about the answer to, i agree where this k-shape recovery taxes may need to be raised but what is your view on this idea that i you know i've been talking about that it can't stop there you've got to get these people retrained for new jobs that have gone away in the pandemic so my the republican main street partnership members agree 100 percent on that we have to have training um, there are jobs, frankly, in this country, even before uh, COVID, are going away. So we have to train our society to take jobs that are being created. And, and that's a huge, huge issue. And the Main Street members are happy to invest money into workforce training and, and retraining. So uh, the headline in the Bloomberg Terminal, I don't know if you, if you saw this today. It's a great story by my colleagues, uh, by my colleague Nancy Cook. Uh, Biden determined to tax rich after windfalls during crisis. Key aides have worked on proposals to tax wealthy for years. The impetus for revamping tax regime grew with the K-shaped recovery. President Joe Biden's economic team at the White House is determined to make good on his campaign pledge to raise taxes on the rich emboldened by mounting data showing how well America's wealthy did financially during the pandemic. This has Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, all over it, uh, Sarah Chamberlain. I mean, uh, we had her on the the other week where she's calling on taxes for for raising taxes on billionaires, on uh, the wealthy. But politically, for the Democrats, this is a very popular proposal, is it not? I mean, this is this is 
What's the what's the opposite of red meat? Blue. <laughs> I don't want to say blue meat. I mean, but but go ahead. My <laughs> right. my metaphors are a little rusty. It's is. Monday. Go ahead. And and actually, I don't even know what that is. But you're Thank right. You. That's what they're doing. They're throwing <laughs> this to their base, and uh, and it, it is equivalent to the red meat. But you know, again. There's only so much the top payers can pay in taxes. I mean, we have to revamp and look at a wide range of where the financial structure in this country is and how we're spending our money, and we can get into COVID and all of that. But the reality is there's only so much you can tax the, the upper 1%. Well, what about permits? That sounds good. Oh, right. Yeah, well, that's, that's we'll, good. we'll talk more about this coming up. What about permits? Okay. You want to create? You want to get rid of the semiconductor shortage chip? What about the permit process? That's what the Republicans are saying. I'm Kevin Surly. Much more with the All-Star Policy Panel. Panel, coming up next. I said red meat. Now I want a cheesesteak. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Coming up, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, Democrat from New York. What an interesting day to have a New York representative on. I'm joined by the all-star policy panel, Jeannie Sean Zeno, Bloomberg Politics contributor, and Sarah Chamberlain, president and CEO of Republican for Main Street Partnership, which promotes centrist Republicans. Sarah, did you hear about that Congressman Tom Reed news? He's not going to run for governor to challenge, uh, well, New York politics right now is a mess, but he's not going to run because of some uh, inappropriate allegation or inappropriate conduct allegations. He released a statement, said he's not going to run uh, for governor, um, but he'll finish out his term. So actually, Kevin, to be honest with you, I'm very close with both Tom and his family. Mm -hmm. um, I think the whole thing is sad. Uh, he has a drinking problem. He's been dry for four years. I don't condone what he did. He truly doesn't remember doing it, but he believes the woman's um, take on it. He totally believes that what she said and uh, he owned it and announced he, he will not seek any any office in 2022. Um, so I think that's sad. I think it's a, a huge loss. And to be honest with you, I give him a tremendous amount of credit. And, uh, you know, Como, I think she followed his lead. I mean, dear wow. God, I think Como has eight women that have come out and has done nothing. Um, so, you know, Tom, I, I hope he continues to... Um, stay sober, and uh, and has a great life with his family. Uh, Jeannie, come in here. 
you know, living in New York, um, and, I, and I agree, Sarah, I, I think he deserves a, a lot of credit. Um, and, you know, uh, obviously what happened is horrific, but he deserves credit for coming out quickly and saying he's not going to seek either re-election or run for governor. Um, as we talk about New York, a, a place where I live, um, we've long called it the most corrupt state in the union. Um, mm-hmm. it, we go back and forth. We switch usually between us and Illinois. Um, but it's we've got a lot, a host of issues here um, that are much, much deeper. And one of the unfortunate things I think about the Cuomo and now Reed situation is much of that has not been discussed, um, except when it comes out in these sort of, uh, you know, horrific stories. But there is good reason that we have such a corrupt system here that needs to be addressed. It's everything from the parties to the way that we run our elections. I mean, you can go right down the list. Um, and that has allowed things like the governor to um, exert the power he has over the last several years. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate. And the nursing home scandal got lost in this, which is also unfortunate. The, my colleague Ryan Teague Beckwith and Henry Goldman have a story out on the terminal. Cuomo adopts campaign tactics to cling to job as probe proceeds. I mean, you're, you're both New Yorkers. It, 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 what, Jeannie, I mean, what, what are you hearing from, from your colleagues in terms of just whether or not Governor Cuomo can hang on to this? I am hearing I'm hearing a mixed message. His poll numbers in the last few polls seem to public polls seem to be dropping a bit. Certainly, New Yorkers do not want him to run again. Um, he is, you know, looking for support, particularly in the African American community in New York. But let's not forget this is somebody who all New Yorkers who have paid attention have known going back to the campaign against against Ed Koch, which was horrific, um, mm. has acted in in a manner that can only be described as deplorable. And um, so, and obviously, I should say he denies the allegations about Ed Koch. But you know, there are so many stories that have come out that this cannot be a surprise for anybody who's paid attention. But if I could just bring in the media here, part of the issue is that as local media around the country, unfortunately, dies off, a lot of what happens in our state capitals and our local communities is lost. So these wow. things, when they come out, um, Carl Hyacin had a great, great piece as he retired um, down in Florida about this. It's a huge problem: corruption rampant at the state and local levels and uncovered because we don't have press there to do it let's take that let's rip up the script sarah go ahead because let's rip up the script to quote my friend and mentor tom keen who by the way is on spring break this week and is off all week tom if you're listening is he always listening go ahead uh, sarah i know tom (laughs) come on go ahead new york as well i'm actually from you know tom reed's district and you are absolutely right that the loss of the local reporters and the local media has been a huge crisis, especially in New York. And, you know, this should be talked about more. Um, up home in the district that I'm from, you know, Tom Reed is, people are all over and they have mixed opinions on whether or not he should have, you know, announced he, he's not seeking higher office, but they do not have mixed opinions on Como. They think Como needs to go. And these are even Democrats that I'm talking to up home and they do not understand how he's continuing to survive. I you mean, know, it, it's shocking. Let's rip up, let's let's go a little global on this. And Jeannie, you and I had interviewed last week Congressman Ken Buck, a Republican from Colorado. Maybe it was Rick Davis, I apologize. But uh, just really fascinating to see the, the deal that Facebook uh, struck with News Corp for content in Australia, just in terms of the local news in Australia. Many people 
including Congressman Ken Buck, who's a Republican from Colorado, are suggesting that that could be the foundation for the social media platforms here in the United States to encourage there to be local news uh, in places like uh, state halls and state capitals all around around the country. But to your point, I mean, it's just a fascinating it's, it's where the geopolitics, the policy, as well as these local state level uh, scandals it's all right there and there's no local reporters to cover it which is a, a harrowing sign of the times i'm kevin Cerilli. this is bloomberg Joining us on the line, a return to the program, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. She's a Democrat from New York. She is a member of the Financial Services uh, Committee. Uh, I want to talk with you about taxes before we get to another hearing that you had today. The Biden administration, Congresswoman, says that they want to raise taxes on Americans who earn more than $400,000 annually. Republicans, as you know, they say we should be lowering the corporate tax rate or keeping it where it is at 21% to attract foreign investment. I mean, I don't know. I mean, where where's the caucus on this and, and where are the Democrats on financial services on this issue? Well, right now we've been focused very much on the American Recovery Act, which mm-hmm. will send and is sending over $1.9 trillion dollars. Uh, back to people in direct payments and hospitals, infrastructure, uh, loans for small businesses to get our economy moving again. Then next on the agenda is the infrastructure investment plan that we've been instructed to uh, work on and to complete. And, And then possibly we'll move to taxes. Right now there hasn't really been a discussion in the caucus on taxes because we've been so focused on getting in record time, $1.9 trillion back out to the American people. And we uh, have also prioritized vaccinations and getting everyone vaccinated as quickly as possible. And we've been uh, meeting our deadlines and our goals in that. At first, uh, he wanted to get everybody vaccinated by the end of uh, of uh, the first 100 days to have 100 million people vaccinated. Well, we di- he did it in 58 days. And, and now he's saying that he wants to get uh, everybody vaccinated by the end of June, appointment by the end of May. So we've been very focused on using the Defense Production Act and every single resource we have to get the vaccinations out to the American people. We're in a race against the virus, and the virus is winning as long as they, we haven't achieved herd immunity and gotten the number of people vaccinated out there ahead of the number of people that have been infected. So that's been the priorities right now. We'll get to taxes eventually. Uh, Right now, we're focused on on the other items, most specifically getting everybody vaccinated. That's what I'm spending all my time on. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people want all the shots to go out. Uh, It's just been such a a crazy news day uh, for New York politics. I know you and your uh, colleague, Jerry Nadler, uh, who uh, you guys have, have... Uh, called on Governor Cuomo uh, to resign. Uh, Do you have any confidence that he's going to listen to his colleagues uh, in terms of resignation? Well, he's already said he's not going to resign. And uh, I think that uh, Speaker Hasty 
has called for an investigation, actually three investigations, and our Attorney General Tish James is conducting them now, um, one on sexual harassment and the allegations that have come forward, another on the nursing home numbers, and another on the Tappan Zee Bridge. So there are three different investigations, and uh, we'll see what the, I think the Assembly is going to stay until you see the results of those investigations. Uh, But if he's indicted or if the investigations come back with uh, proof, then uh, then I, I would expect that he would be impeached by the by the assembly. But who knows? It's a separate body, and and they're conducting their review. Um, and uh, and many believe he's totally entitled to due process, and that's taking place right now. You are the chairwoman of the House Committee on Oversight and Reform, and I got to be honest here: this issue has gotten much more traction in recent months. Uh, than I think people realize. But you had a a, a heated D.C. statehood hearing today, Um, and there's this renewed effort for Washington, D.C. to become the 51st state. Uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser uh, testified on it. How how realistic of a possibility is this? What I don't understand, I live in D.C. I, I get the whole taxation without representation argument, but how realistic is it to just stick another star on the flag? Why not either break the district, some go to Maryland, some go to Virginia. Are there other things being discussed other than just D.C. should be its own state? Well, I, I, we are really uh, uh, looking at this, at this bill, and, and last year we had a hearing on it, and one of the reasons people are discussing it more is that it put a spotlight and sort of explained it to people. And, it's, it's, uh, and that's why we're going through regular order now uh, for at least two reasons. First, we want to build a legislative record for an inevitable uh, court challenge. And secondly, we want to use this hearing and markup and floor vote to educate the American people and the undecided uh, Democratic senators on why statehood is the right thing to do and constitutional. Now, there were a lot of uh, discussion about Democrats just want a power grab. They want to steal two Senate seats and this type of talk. But the real power grab is denying 712,000 taxpaying. I'm one of them. uh, The right to vote. And this isn't about politics. It's about fundamental voting and civil rights issues. And I think it's outrageous that the Republicans would play partisan politics just to block 712,000 Americans from having full equality, and, and democracy. But what I don't understand is why, and maybe, uh, I don't understand why there aren't other solutions or other policies or maybe even compromise, you know, where, where there's 700 plus thousand people who are taxed without representation. I get that. But still no talk about whether or not parts go to Virginia or parts go to Maryland or, or whatnot. I don't know. It just seems that, that there could be uh some other solutions, but this this seems to be a very partisan issue, as you just alluded to, and not one where, where folks want to compromise. Well, uh, the Republicans did not put forward any other <laughs> alternative, so it's hard to discuss an alternative if it's not even on the table. Uh, right now, we have, uh, and, and I think when you look at the, at the uh, statistics about it, uh, D.C., pays more in federal taxes than 21 states and more per capita than any state in the nation. 
and it has a larger population than two states, Wyoming and Vermont. I didn't realize and, Wyoming. And all of that, so that's, that's really quite something, and, and they are states, and despite all our progress. Yeah. I know you got to run, Congresswoman well, Carolyn Maloney. I know you got to run, but uh, fat, it, I'm telling you, folks, that is the sleeper issue right there, D.C. statehood. It's fascinating. I can nerd out on it. Thank you to the, the Chairwoman Maloney of uh, Oversight and Reform. I'm Kevin Cerulli. More next. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by none other than Jeannie Shanzano. Uh, she is Bloomberg Politics contributor. Uh, Jeannie, I got to say, I feel like the pandemic, the, the end is in sight for the pandemic era. A friend of mine used that term over the weekend, and I'm going to steal it from her. Pandemic era is coming to a close. I'm not saying it's over. Wear a mask, wash your hands, don't touch your face, get the shot. But it does feel that with this spring awakening, that things are some the pandemic era is coming to an end it does from your lips kevin cerilli i am just (laughs) i don't want to talk about what's going on in paris that really frightens me so that this makes me feel much better and i you know as more people get vaccinated and the numbers increase you just i i try not to look at what's happening in miami and paris and i feel better Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and for me it's like the weather. The weather's good. I'm good. Joining us on the line, she's always good on geopolitics. Agar Shamali, CEO of Greenwich Media Strategy, former Treasury Department official. She served in both uh, Democratic and Republican administrations. Agar, these China sanctions that have been dominating my world of coverage for the day are fascinating. I think the biggest question mark heading into the Biden administration would be whether or not the EU would follow the United States lead over the last couple of years in taking a harder line stance against China for the Communist Party's human rights abuses against the Uyghur Muslim minorities in the Xinjiang province. Well, they took the lead today after that frosty Alaska meeting just last week. Yeah, that was a frosty meeting. I mean, it seemed awkward. <laughs> um, it, You know, on top of it, not only was it awkward because the Chinese, I think the Chinese probably went in there thinking that, you know, we knew that they went in there that they wanted to demand that the Biden administration remove uh, several of Trump's policies regarding trade restrictions, uh, sanctions, and so on. And Blinken basically said fat chance. And not only did he say that, and he kind of seemed to have read the riot act to his counterpart on a whole host of issues, right? How they behave during the pandemic. Um, they're, of course, their uh, unfair trade practices, their stealing of, of IP and so on, but also their human rights abuses uh, and genocide against the Uyghurs, the repression of Tibet, their um, behavior in Hong Kong. I mean, he really went through the list. And um, one of the key tenets of Biden's uh, tactics in terms of approaching China is to rally the allies, 
in order to kind of build the pressure together. And I think that that's so critical. And we didn't really know how they were going to turn out. But I think the coordinated action that happened today in terms of sanctions really does speak volumes in terms of doing this together with our international partners. Let me follow up on this because you've actually worked on in sanctions. You've worked in crafting them and you know the rollout is so incredibly intricate and detailed. How striking is it to have such a coordinated effort and a follow-up to that, is this just the first step in a longer marathon? Well, so to answer backwards, the, yes, this is absolutely, I assume, a first step. Um, and in two ways. So on one hand, uh, usually when Treasury does sanctions, they start, they may have numerous targets in mind, but they're not going to unleash them all at once because they want to just do them step by step and ratchet up the pressure further and further in order to see, you know, how much more do we need to squeeze in order to change behavior or exact what, what it is we're trying to exact, right? And of course, that needs to be coupled with a broader strategy, right? A diplomatic strategy, humanitarian, uh, military, whatever the whatever that strategy entails. Um, and so you're, uh, this is definitely just the beginning. In fact, you saw they had imposed sanctions last week, the day before Blinken's meeting, uh, on 24 Chinese government and Hong Kong officials for the repression in Hong Kong specifically. So you have that last week, you have this this week. And so not only are you going to see more of these sanctions focused on human rights and democracy, but the effort to do them in tandem with other countries is also uh, going to be a key feature. Um, you know, now when it, today's action was with the EU, uh, the United Kingdom, and Canada. And it's not, I don't want to say it's easy to do, you know, it's not like a phone call, uh, but it does take work, and certainly it takes a lot of time to coordinate it on the same day. Um, I know because I've done it before uh, for a range of our sanctions packages. But when you do it, it's all the louder and, 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 and all the more effective. But I do, I do expect to see more of it. This is Jeannie Zeno. It's so good to talk to you. I have been waiting to ask a sanctions expert this, and I'm going to do it in two parts. Number uh-huh. one, has the United States become too sanctions happy? This is something that we in my field think about all the time. Um, are we imposing sanctions almost any time we don't like an action of another country? and not using other tools at our disposal. And then the second part of this is, if we just look at another, you know, discussed sanctions on the Nord Stream 2, as it, you know, pertains to Russia and Germany, are those kinds of secondary sanctions a violation of international law? So I'm sorry for the two-parter, but I'm following Kevin because he did one, so I'm doing one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, thanks, Jeannie. It's so great to meet you, uh, you know, over the radio, over the uh, radio waves. And you're asking a question. I mean, that could be answered in a dissertation, but I'll try and be very brief. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) So first is, for sure, we've become sanctions happy. And that is not just a trademark of the Trump administration, though it certainly grew under the Trump administration significantly. But it was also toward the end of the Obama administration. We, you know, the White House turned to us when I was at Treasury. They turned to us for every issue around the world and us at Treasury and said, you know, hey, okay, what options and tools do you have at your disposal? Who could we target? What could we do? Right? So, and it's because sanctions are an easy tool to use. They are effective, um, given the power of our dollar. Um, so our currency and our reserves, of course, and the fact that people hold the dollar in reserves, this is really what gives us 
just such potency in this tool, correct? So it is, it is easy and they can be very effective. And so, um, we have gotten a little sanctions happy, but I'm not personally, for example, I'm not against, um, a lot of sanctions if they're used deliberately and strategically, right? So when they are done, when they're just slapped for no reason, or not no reason, but when they're just slapped, and there isn't a broader strategy with a very clearly articulated goal at hand, then that's where things get really risky. That's where it just seems like the U.S. has nothing to do or doesn't know what to do, and so we'll just sanction. And that's not a good look, and it's not a good place to be because we don't want collateral damage, right? We don't want people working outside the dollar or or removing their reserves. We don't want... Uh, workarounds to be created uh, in terms of, you know, the the EU, for example, doing things only in EU, uh, in the euro. So, um, so that's, that's the one. This administration has pledged to, to look at sanctions more broadly and make sure that they are more strategically used. Um, and, uh, and I, I expect to see that, though I will say the pace of sanctions has pretty much remained the same in terms of uh, the number of them per week from the Trump administration to now. And in terms of your question on Nord Stream, so listen, most Treasury people will tell you that they reject the notion that our sanctions are extraterritorial. I am not a legal expert myself, so I don't want to pretend that, that, I, that I can go into the weeds of that. Um, but the reason that that sentiment is there is because the feeling is, you know, listen, if we see criminal behavior then no, we don't want you using the dollar. No, we don't want you accessing reserves here. We don't want you corresponding with New York. If you want to do behave, if you want to engage with, you know, whatever criminal, whomever criminal that might be, or supporting somebody that, you know, by, by doing business with them, you are furthering their criminal activities or repressive behavior or whatever it might be, then no, we the United States, we reserve the right to say that, you know what, sorry, we're not gonna, we're not gonna allow that. So that's why it's not viewed from Treasury's angle as extraterritorial. Hagar, I gotta say, I was talking to Morgan Ortegas earlier today, and she's flying to a, a, somewhere, and she was saying that she wants to go on a panel with you on this show. So we have to arrange Morgan and Hagar on together. It'd be like a geopolitical hour and you've got this new show on youtube called oh my world who do you have on the show this week you're so kind thank you so much kevin um for mentioning it um i actually don't know yet who i'm gonna have who was on on last week who was on last Last, week it's okay i don't know either (laughs) last week was so amazing so my show by the way is i tape it on thursdays it released on fridays which is why i don't know yet but last week i was so lucky i had both gretchen carlson who's as you all know, American broadcaster, uh, co-founder of Lift Our Voices, um, and she spoke in the wake of the murder of Sarah Everard in London yep. and the reaction of the police at the vigil. We spoke about. I watched it. Go watch it. I got. I hate. I go watch on YouTube. Oh my world! Hagar Shamali's program. Hagar, I have to run, but um, it was a great episode. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.